0: Hi, this is Mike Balaban. You're listening to Bammer and Me, building community through storytelling and sharing the LGBTQ plus experience. My guest today is David Mixter, a longtime civil rights activist and friend who has a remarkable history to share with us today. And so I want to get right to it. David, thank you for agreeing to meet with us.
1: Oh, it's a delight and an honor.
0: You know, you're... Your history is one. I mean, you've been in the public eye a lot, but I also know there are a lot of things you've done that are outside of the public eye. And I've had the pleasure of hearing you expound on some of them in one or two of your one-man shows. And so some of that I'd like to bring to the attention of our audience today. You had a fairly typical upbringing in Southern New Jersey, and yet At a very early age, while in high school, you started to display your activist tendencies and intentions. Can you walk us through that upbringing and how you found yourself in that path?
1: First of all, we forget what South Jersey was like in the uh, 40s and the 50s. I'm 75 this year, so those decades still have importance to me. South Jersey was known in southern Delaware and eastern shore of Maryland back then as Little Dixie. They actually sent Confederate units to the Civil War. And in uh, Salem County, where I grew up, there's a Confederate graveyard with 3,000 graves in it. And we were totally segregated. Restaurants, schools, and everything involved. There was a town called Elmer that African Americans weren't allowed to be in the town after 6 p.m. So I really got to see injustice up close and personal. I somehow have always been given by God the values of we're put here to take care of others. I think part of the culture of that, even though it was segregated, was if your neighbor's barn burned down, everybody came together to rebuild it. That's just the way it was back then. However, they forgot to tell me it was a white-only policy. And I think my first awareness was in my freshman year of high school, where a young lady who was dating a very nice African-American man, and she was very nice and very much in love, actually got married, I think, was expelled from school for dating an African-American person. So that gives you a a climate that helped form me and my path.
0: What were some of your early uh, indications of that future?
1: I've been at this now... 61 years of activism. I started at 14 with John Kennedy for president in 1960. I always say it was two Johns and a king (laughs) that made me what I am today. John Kennedy instilled in all of the young people of the country at the time, uh, an extraordinary, inspiring, charismatic human being that there was a world out there and we had responsibility for the world not only the United States
0: who was the second John Martin Luther King John Kennedy and John
1: Pope John the 23rd you might who, say. as a Catholic reformed the Catholic Church and did Vatican II who was the first hint of liberation theology which I follow which is that God put us here on earth for only one reason and that is to serve others and I've done that for 62 years
0: it's too bad so many other would-be Christians don't actually follow what they espouse, isn't it?
1: You no, know, I try not to judge them. I follow my path. And if it's popular, terrific, and if it's not, I'm willing to pay the price.
0: I read that you actually had wanted to go down south and support the the black civil rights movement when that was happening, but your parents stood in your way at age what 15 or 16, is that yeah, correct? In
1: high school, they absolutely forbid me. In fact, my father gave me a beating. Keep me home, but <laughs> their angry reaction and what they said about African-Americans helped theme it, that this was a just cause. And as soon as I left high school, I went, soon, literally, that summer after graduation.
0: I know you went to college initially at Arizona State, but I also know you, you dropped out there. You perhaps finished elsewhere later. But got expelled. Got expelled, really? And was that for activists? Uh, yes. Tell us about it.
1: There's not much to tell. This was at the height of now of the free speech movement on universities, and the opposition to the Vietnam War was beginning. Civil rights was front and center with all the students in America. and I had been south, I even arrested for voting rights in Mississippi.
0: And the sexual revolution was just
1: about to- the sexual revolution, and it was a time of great change. And I joined a bunch of other students in taking over to Dean's office.
0: And paid a price for it.
1: Well, three days. I think what pissed him off most, I smoked his cigars.
0: Funny. So what happened next to bring you down that path towards civil rights activism after you left school?
1: By then, I was really into civil rights activism. And uh, like I said, I'd been south, had been arrested, even received a beating for my belief in civil rights. I think the uh, second stage of all of this is the Vietnam War. Now, Vietnam War is one of those classic things that the old sent the young to the war, and it was the young who died. And we all could be drafted. And my family lost four in the Vietnam War, and and it was an unjust, horrific war that was killing some of our best and brightest young people here in America, and literally slaughtering uh, South Vietnamese, North Vietnamese people with bombing and napalm and stuff like that.
0: I don't think our audience is aware, so I'll just insert parenthetically. At that time, the draft for the military was open to anyone and everyone, whereas today it's a voluntary army. People. Yeah,
1: up. it certainly was. And they had a policy under the General Hershey, who was head of the draft board, that if you had time to protest the war, then you had time to fight it. So if you had a record of protesting or going to jail because of the war, they drafted you as punitive measures. And I received one of those notices. <clears throat> and it was one of those moments in your life that you realize that this could de- pa- define the path for the rest of your life. And young people shouldn't have to make that decision at 21, 22. And I decided there were three choices: go to Vietnam, go to Canada or Sweden, leave the country forever, or to go to jail for five years.
0: You couldn't uh, apply for conscientious objector no, status.
1: I down left and right, I did. Memory down. Right. This was all political, and I didn't think I could. I had a lot of high school classmates, and my best friend died in Vietnam from high school at 18, so we were used to death early, and May 1968, 3,000 died in one month, so that's the total of the Iraq and Afghanistan war combined in one month, and I just felt that I would be dishonoring those and my peers who served, and if I wasn't going to go to war, which was out of the question for me on, on my values and principles, then I had to pay a price. So I decided to go to jail and I wrote a very articulate letter to the Salem County Draft Board saying, fuck you and fuck your war. (laughs) And that's all I said. I was on my way to go to prison. But unfortunately, in Chicago Convention in 1968, the Democratic Convention, which the war was the major issue there, that and uh, seating of integrated delegations. I was beaten severely by the police while demonstrating and was on, off and on crutches for three years and some surgeries. Wow. And that got me out of, the, of my case because I... So
0: there was, a fourth, there was a fourth alternative.
1: Yeah, exactly. Go get beaten and disabled for four years.
0: Just as an aside, that means that at the very least, you've been through three waves of the loss of friends. The war, HIV and COVID. Yes. If not others.
1: I have also done a lot of work in Africa in civil rights and civil war zones and been exposed to a lot of mass death and misery and endangered myself a little bit.
0: I would be interested-
1: Life is very fleeting.
0: I would be interested at another time to discuss with you whether that exposure to death has given you greater equanimity in dealing with it, as a recent Somalian Civil War refugee who I interviewed uh, explained as how it affected him.
1: My, my journey with death has left me with zero fear of death. I believe yeah. in an afterlife, and I believe it, death is like what Socrates said to Plato. Yeah. Uh, it, he said, death is like life. It's a journey
0: into the unknown. And in fact, you recently had some health issues that might have brought you precariously close there. If I understand.
1: I have been very sick the last ten years. I've been in critical condition eight times. Right. Given the last rites four times, and just got over a very severe
0: case of COVID. And how is your health now?
1: I am one of the COVID long-termers, which almost is worse than the COVID.
0: Yeah, about their friends. Uh,
1: you know, uh, young people who are long, long, let me just explain a second. For those who don't know, long-termers are people who have gotten their COVID, but they are uh, apparently after effects that last maybe, we, no one knows how long. We know that they last in some cases at least a year, maybe more. And it's estimated that 33 million people have it. So it's like the wounded returning from war. We hear about the death, but we forget the wounded and uh, symptoms are among young people early strokes heart attacks kidney failure
0: are you part of the study groups where they're trying to determine the
1: i am part of one study
0: a friend friend of mine uh, uh, who has it told me that they actually have a name for it now pasc post-acute sequelae of sars slash covid
1: it's easier to call it (laughs) (laughs) long-term it's easy to call it long-term they can name whatever they want they got these variants with so many initials and numbers, I can't keep. It out of my eye. I understand the British, the South African, the Brazilian variant. Let's just make it easy for people. And the three major or four major things of the long termer is for me was extreme exhaustion, and I still have that. Extreme, what they call COVID fog, which isn't like dementia or Alzheimer's, but what it is, is you just sit here. And suddenly I realize I might be staring at you for 20 minutes and have no awareness that that much time has passed.
0: I've heard it described as brain fog.
1: Yeah, brain fog, COVID fog. It's known as COVID fog. And then some people have severe pain in their limbs or one or two limbs or all four. I've had very severe pain in my legs so severe at times that I have trouble walking. But interestingly enough, when I got vaccinated, I have had both my shots. And anyone out there who hasn't been vaccinated, shame on you. There's so much available now. There's no excuse. You're putting your own health. You're making the risk that you could become a burden on our healthcare system. And clearly, you don't care about your friends if you haven't gotten vaccinated yet. But when I got vaccinated, uh, where I was dealing with these after effects for 24-7, suddenly they were cut. Down by two thirds. So now I had them periodically. And when they're happening, they're paralyzing, but it's much better.
0: It's almost like God has a plan for you and you keep coming close to leaving and being brought back. So uh well,
1: my doctor said after this COVID, which would maybe be the ninth nice time I've tickled death, he said you yeah, clearly, David, God doesn't want you and the devil doesn't want you. He said you really <laughs> pissed them off.
0: <laughs> Keep doing it. Keep doing it. So I'd like you, if you wouldn't mind sharing what you described so eloquently in your one man show, which was your involvement in the moratorium uh, to end the Vietnam War in 1969. And our young audience may not realize how devastating that was and how it enraged and activated the youth population across the country. But also, you, to, to talk about that, you need to level set us on what it was like being gay at that time in in America and then how that collided with the moratorium uh, process that you were involved with. If that triggers your memory about yeah, what I'm like. uh,
1: Sure. Uh, the Vietnam War was a nightmare for young America. This was really the first time since World War II that young people had to decide uh, between serving their country and living their moral conscience and principles. Unlike World War II, which was an easy job, I'm a pacifist, but I would have gone without a gun to be a medic because I believed in the purpose of the war. I saw no redeeming features and neither the young people, most young people. And it became like a war between the young and the old and the students and the workers. And it was a very divided time in our country. Different from Trump, because it was not the lack of respect for each side. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of things, But our elected officials tried to calm everything down instead of pouring gasoline on it. But almost every young person in the country knew someone who had died in the war. 55,000 died in, of American troops, and over a million Vietnamese died. And every night on television, we would see bombers unload more bombs in Hanoi in one weekend than was dropped in all of World War II. Oh, my God. Yeah. And you just daily were barraged with these images of kids running down the street on napalm or Malai, which was a massacre that took place by U.S. troops, wiped out a whole village. And you had to make a choice. And so the anti-war movement up until 1969 had been isolated among the students and the more progressive elements of the of U.S. life. And four of us who had worked for Bobby Kennedy and Eugene McCarthy against Lyndon Johnson, who was president at the time in the political process, decided that we needed to create a movement that would appeal to middle-class Americans that we didn't have to ask them how they felt on independence for Puerto Rico in order to be against the war. And we didn't put up any other litmus test either for it or you're to forward against it, that's all we cared. And, and realize the purpose of a movement, by the way, any movement, especially this one, is not to prove how self-righteous you are, not to prove how right you are, not to prove how bright you are, it is to change minds and make it easy for other people to join you. That's the only purpose of our movement. And not to put obstacles in their way that they have to prove themselves to you to want to stop the killing. So we created the Vietnam Moratorium. We had $100 between of us, four young students, one office, one phone line, no cell phones, no Xerox machine, no fax machine at that time. And in six months, we created the largest demonstrations in American history until the Women's March recently. We had over two million Americans participate and come out on October 15th, 1969 to oppose the war in Vietnam. One month later, we had 800,000 march on Washington DC against the war. It was on the cover of every magazine. It was banner headlines. And we succeeded in getting labor to join the opposition for the war for the first time. History has shown us that we helped to prevent nuclear weapons from being used in Vietnam, which was uh, Henry Kissinger wrote about in his memoirs and other knowledge that we now have, that we were responsible in large part for stopping that use of those kind of weapons in Vietnam. And it was the beginning of the end of the war.
0: That's a pretty powerful impact. It's a pretty powerful impact for four yeah, young
1: It was tough. I was 21, 22. I think we got nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize for the organization. But we would meet, I met with the president, I met with Kissinger, and all of those folks. And I, our platform was very simple. We didn't have 110 issues on it. Bring the boys home now, put an immediate withdrawal stop all this bullshit about is, if, the, but. People, our kids are dying. Just bring them home. They have no business there. Now, I remember meeting with one high-powered senator in Congress, and he looked at me and said, David, you're 23. Very patronizing. And he says, this is a very complex foreign policy issue. And he said, this demand to immediately withdraw from Vietnam is not only realistically, logistically and realistically possible, impossible, but it shows a decided lack of knowledge on your part about the war. And I said, Senator, I'd be willing to compare my knowledge and what I've learned about the war against yours any day of the week. So if you'd like to have a little quiz show, let's go. And I said, number two, it's not complicated. You take the troops that are there, put them in buses, you take them to the ships and to the planes, and you point them east and they come home.
0: That's amazing. And so uh, you had some issues getting to that point.
1: Yeah. And- I, I mean, I was, I'd started dealing with my gayness. I was severely closeted. No one knew I was gay. I, I thought maybe some people did, but it turned out they didn't. <laughs> guess I was just too butch. No, I'm not. And But any young person at that age, you have a high sexual drive. I've always been a sexual liberationist. Didn't understand it all until later. But I certainly, while closeted, was going to have sexuality in my life. And that meant homosexuality in my life. And so I would go to bars with a cowboy hat covering my face and my cowboy boots, which I grew up in. It wasn't an outfit. It was part of what I wore to the moratorium, a country hillbilly, and make up names, make up occupations, make up where I came from. It got so I couldn't even keep track of myself, who I told somebody who I was.
0: But That was necessary at that time.
1: Uh, our country tells us they have prize truth more than anything else. It's like the father saying to the son, or George Washington supposedly, did you chop down the tree and the myth goes, oh, I can't tell a lie, dad. Yes, I did." And the worst thing you could do to your family or in the community is lie. But The worst thing you could do in court is if you lied, you went to jail for perjury. More people in my lifetime have gone to jail for perjury than the actual crimes they committed. And so this nation is one that, quote, values truth. And unless you're gay. And in the great American experiment, no matter if you're in the Grange Hall, the Union Hall, or the Seafarers Hall, or the debutante Hall, they said, you're so bad. You're so evil. We're going to make an exception to you. We expect you to lie to us. We expect you to make up false identities. Whatever you do, don't tell us who you are.
0: Because we'll punish you.
1: They sent us to mental institutions. They did lobotomies. They fired us from our jobs. We were shunned by our families. And so it was an interesting twist on that. About And I knew that my life would be over if anyone found out I was gay. But I went to a bar. And back then in Washington, D.C., when you went in a bar, there was no dance bar. It was just a bar. And it was down an alley, off Thomas Circle, and just a light, no signage. And you'd go back, knock on the door, and they'd look out, and then they let you in. Now, the moment you sat down in that bar, you had to stay there. You could not pick up your drink and go to the end of the bar or to another table because D.C. had a law that if you ordered a drink and then moved it to someone else, that was solicitation.
0: And this was only applied, presumably, in gay bars, or did that also happen?
1: only applied in gay bars, and they were undercover agents who would arrest people. If I saw you sitting at a table across the room and said, oh well, my, that's a handsome man, I'll go over there and sit with him, I'd be arrested. So you had to rely on the good grace of God to hope who would sit <coughs> excuse me, COVID, who would sit next to me. And one night, this my type to a T walked in and sat next to me. And if you were interested, you'd rub against the leg, not say anything. And if they were interested, they would rub back. And then the protocol was you wouldn't say anything that could be overheard. That one or the other of you would go outside. And five minutes, the other would follow. And I went outside, and I, five, five long minutes, seemed like five hours, and this stud came out, and we went back to his apartment. He was a federal employee, and he says, I know who you are. And I just was terrified. He said, no, 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 chill. He said, I'm proud of who you are, and the work you're doing against the war, I want to create a safe space for you, where we can bond with each other, or develop whatever we are to each other. And you'd stay out of those bars where you could get arrested. And I said, thank you. And it turns out he liked the same poetry I liked. He liked the same music, Janice Joplin, Elvis, uh, White Rabbit, and uh, Jimi Hendrix. And we developed this incredible, what I thought was, love story for 30 days. And then one weekend he had to go away. And uh, he came, said he'd be meet me at the Hilton. Uh, Statler Hilton, I think it was some sort of Howard Johnson's shoot-off or something. Anyhow, he didn't show up, and two men in a suit came and sat at my table, and I said to myself, "This isn't good." And showed me badges. I don't know who they represented because they closed them real quick, and emptied on the table pictures of this guy and I having sex, and. Said that if I didn't get out of the anti-war movement by the end of the week, they were going to send them to the press and my family. And uh, so I wanted to warn this gentleman and I ran to his apartment. I had a key, of course, opened the door. And over the weekend, the apartment had been completely emptied, clean, and everyone there in the building denied he lived there. I had been set up by some agency of government.
0: How devastating was that?
1: You have no idea. I went and got a gun, got very drunk and was getting ready to kill myself and uh, and I have what I call a God shock, a moment where God intervenes in tough situations and it occurred to me, I don't think they can send those pictures because then they'd have to admit that they were filming this stuff uh, secretly, and I don't, Yeah, Not only entrapment, I just don't think they want the taxpayers to know they're making pornography. Now, in my case, very good pornography. <laughs> <laughs> very good pornography. <laughs> I used to be a hottie, and the uh, story short, I got through it, and but it changed my course in the Vietnam moratorium. I decided not to do any more press. Be low key.
0: Didn't I think you you told the story about one night guys in a like a limousine or a car standing outside in the street waiting for you and saying.
1: Yeah, well, they came a week later. It wasn't a limousine. It was an ugly Plymouth. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what it is about our intelligence agencies. They can't seem to get a good car. It's a Plymouth, a Dodge, a, you know, <laughs> a Ford Escort. i, I know. we got to increase the budget and help those guys. And they were waiting for my answer a week later. And by this time, I had sobered up, and I knew what I was going to do. I was going to take the risk. And I walked to the car, and they rolled down the window and said, and I said, send it to him, and walked away. Now, sounds very brave. I was terrified for months. Every time I heard that my parents called or a press spokesperson wanted to speak to me, I thought they had it. Right. It, It was months of hell.
0: You had cojones, as they say.
1: I don't know if I had cojones. I just, Fannie Lou Hamer, who was a great civil rights legend who I, met in Mississippi, once said to me, the courage is just a lack of options. That's good. And I had a lack of options. So I did what I had to do. People think it's courageous now. I just was trying to survive, quite
0: honestly. The whole scenario is a powerful explanation of an indictment of the attitudes and the lengths to which the government would go to treat a class of its citizens so abysmally. bully for you, that you managed to stand up to them and managed to escape unscathed.
1: Not unscathed, but I managed to survive.
0: Yeah. So next, I wonder if you could tell us, those who know who you are are presumably aware of your close friendship for a long time with Bill Clinton, long before he was president. Can you tell us how you guys met, how you got so close? You were on the executive committee of his campaign, election campaign. You helped raise funds for him. And then when he got elected, there was a rift that occurred over his back off. Go ahead.
1: I met Bill in the uh, President Clinton. I met in the Vietnam moratorium. He was doing an internship for Fulbright. I was involved in the moratorium. He used to come over and visit us, hang out for brunch on Sundays with us. As I always said, Bill was uh, great at befriending those who were making change instead of making it himself at the time. He's from Arkansas. We never did anything on the civil rights movement except befriended the leaders. But we became very close because of our background. We were both from different
0: backgrounds.
1: And in the anti war movement, most, a lot of the leaders of the anti war movement were the sons and daughters of someone famous, like Barbara Tuckman's daughter, or the Salton Stalls, or the Lodges, or whatever. And him and I, he was from Hope, Arkansas, and I was from Elmer, New Jersey. And it didn't, there weren't many of us in the uh, moratorium like that. So we became very close. At the end of 6970, I, I went overseas to Europe, went to Oxford for a while, spoke, and stayed with him
0: while he was uh, in, yeah, in the Rhodes scholarship, scholarship
1: Program. Rhodes Scholar and strobe Talbert who later went on to be his deputy secretary of state and also published the bestseller Khrushchev memoirs that he had smuggled. He was U.S. ambassador
0: to Russia for a while.
1: Yeah. And so I stayed in their house and we even became closer. And then when he started the run for president, he asked me to be the first openly gay person to ever serve in a presidential campaign's kitchen cabinet. And that was the 10 or 12 people that the candidate listened to the most and would have the most influence, and they were known as the kitchen cabinet back then for the campaign. And I was the first openly gay person ever asked to do it, and I did it. And we raised $4 million, which was unheard of, not even ever approaching it for the campaign. Now, just to put this in context, Mike, in 1988, just four years earlier, we offered to raise a million dollars. Randy Close, David Wexler, myself, and Duke Comersers went to offer to raise him a million dollars because of HIV and AIDS. And they said they would love the checks, but they couldn't be identified as gay. And they turned down us raising a million dollars because we wanted to count as gay money. So four years later, this was revolutionary. That openly gay people were giving openly gay Contributions and four million, which doesn't seem much now, but to, in today's terms it would be like a hundred million. You know, not quite that much, but it was a lot of money, and made us one of the biggest donors. And we basically supplied supplied across the country to volunteers for almost every headquarters. It was amazing. I've never seen our community rise to an opportunity with such grace and dignity. Got elected, and one of the things he promised us that he would abolish the ban on LGBTQ people serving in the military. And after he got elected, no one wanted to deal with the issue. And there were a lot of back and forth, but it was agreed upon that on inauguration day he would go in, sign the executive order after being inaugurated with 20 others. So it wouldn't be any big deal. Which I all of us found very acceptable. We didn't necessarily have to have a big signing thing. It wasn't about that. And then the day before the inauguration, they called me and said, we need six months, which was breaking their word to us. And they knew it was going to cause a real backlash in the community unless it was handled, because they had been told this was going to happen tomorrow. And they asked me if I would go to the community because they trusted me and say, give six months, let's organize, let's build a a political support system for the president on this. And I did, on the word of the president that in six months he would sign it. He gave me his word. On six months, instead of signing the ban and we created, the community created, a massive campaign called Campaign for Military Service, millions of dollars raised, ads created, celebrities, excuse me, celebrities involved. It was a a sight to behold. But instead, at the end of six months, without telling us, he went to a military base with no gays present and announced, don't ask, don't tell. And he said, this is a big advancement. People can serve in the military if they're LGBTQ. They can't be dismissed if they're found out, but if they tell anyone, or do something like hold hands and kiss on the base, they can be dismissed. And I remember going in to see the president one time. I said, let me tell you what that's like. I said, that's like you're living upstairs on the second floor of the executive mansion. And you come down the elevator, you walk through to the west wing, go into the Oval office. And the moment you arrive at your place of duty, you can't have a picture of Mrs. Clinton or Chelsea anywhere. You can't acknowledge them. You can't talk about your anniversary or if Chelsea is sick or your relationship. And if you do, you will be impeached. And I said, you can't live that way in the can we. No human being can live like that. And I was, now a lot of people in the community supported it, especially Barney Frank. But I thought that it would be a disastrous policy, which it turned out to be. Between Don't Ask, Don't Tell and its repeal under President Obama, 14,000-plus members of the military were either court-martialed, sent to prison, or given dishonorable discharges.
0: For being LGBTQ.
1: Yes. And it all depended on the commander. If the commander was somewhat progressive, that ship did okay. If a commander on a ship hated gays, they went on witch hunts, and they had snitch systems. It was horrible. So after the day he announced uh, two weeks later, I got arrested. Uh, The first person of his inner circle to get arrested. And it was front page news all over the country.
0: Arrested for? Pardon? What were you arrested for?
1: Uh, We had made arrangements with the police in front of the White House, refusing to move. Right. You know, with signs. And there were about 20 of us, 21 of us that got arrested. And uh, I remember afterwards, he called and said, you got arrested outside my effing house. And I said, with all due respect, Mr. President, that's not your house. That's the people's house, and we're just letting you use it. And he slammed down the phone. (laughs) And then the next day, the White House said, David Mixner is no longer welcome in the White House or anyone else that he's associated with. And for four years, uh, uh, I lost all my clients. One second here, I'll get rid of it. I lost
0: all my clients and couldn't work for four years. Let me just insert, Dave, That what you meant by that. David and his partner, his lover, uh, was it uh, Peter Scott? I
1: wasn't in a relationship
0: at that time. He oh, I thought, I thought you formed he had your... He passed away. Oh, he had passed away? But you had earlier formed a consulting firm, a political consulting firm, I believe. And that was... That was getting- that was later? Earlier,
1: earlier, Yeah, back in the 70s and so forth. But, uh, you know, it just, he, my partner had passed. The consulting firm has been good. But I was independently consulting, and I had some major clients and was making good money. In 24 hours, they canceled all of them on me. And I literally couldn't work. I was palming my watches at palm shops to pay my rent. Wow. And that was on for four years.
0: You paid a price.
1: I knew I can't make myself a victim on that. It was a hard time. It was the heavy price, but I knew it would be. You can be a victim if something terrible happens to you and you don't expect it. But I had talked to my sister, who was my top political advisor throughout my life, and we both felt it was something I had to do, that I had convinced the community to support this guy, <coughs> and it was important to be true to myself. And so, in many ways, I took that action to be true to myself. It's very Quaker. And hopefully, by my sacrifice, I would inspire others.
0: This is post-game analysis, but it's something I've always wondered. Do you think if Clinton had stuck by his conviction and on the first day announced that policy change, even though the military was clearly going to have a backlash, that he would have survived it and made it to the presidency. Okay.
1: Questioned that he would have, and it wasn't even postmortem. The fact of the matter is, Colin Powell has said in interview after interview that if the president would have given clear guidance, he would have implemented the president's policy. But he, what happened is, Clinton bounced around, couldn't make up his mind. And that vacuum was filled uh, filled by the opponents of LGBTQ people, led by Senator Sam Nunn. Right. Uh, generals would buy. I mean, what Are generals going to resign and give up their private plane and their stars and their private home with military butlers and servants for gay rights? I don't think so. Gotcha.
0: Wow. Have you and Bill Clinton repaired that schism?
1: We did. Repair it somewhat. I don't know if you ever can repair. It or if someone who put you out of work for four years, uh, blacklist you, but we agreed to disagree and ended up working on some things. And then in 1968, Bill expected me to support Hillary, who I liked.
0: 2008.
1: 2008. Thank you. Who I liked, but I had a problem with her support of the Iraq War. And she was adamant that it was the right thing. And I was equally as adamant that it wasn't. So I endorsed Bernie Sanders. And that sent him over the edge. He sent me a, a long, handwritten, profanity-laced, on a yellow tablet paper, a letter to me after I did that.
0: He's a politician, and you're a man of conviction, and they often bump heads.
1: We, we each chose our journey. I chose mine. I try not to judge others, but I'm proud of mine.
0: Would you briefly explain your involvement in the No On Six anti gay campaign in California in 1976 right? and around the time you began coming out? So the, the conflict that must have provided internally. Ah, okay.
1: Anita Bryant. I was 30 years old and very successful professionally and nationally known in American politics because of the Vietnam moratorium. <coughs> And Anita Bryant decided to start this whole thing of the initiatives process in Florida to put our rights on the ballot for everyone to decide whether we had a right to be free. We don't put people's rights on ballot. That's not how it works. But she did. She got the signatures. And we didn't, quite honestly, might take it too seriously. We just couldn't believe Americans would vote to allow us to be fired from our jobs and denied public accommodations. And it passed by 67%. In a liberal Florida county. county. And, and then she took it to St. Paul and to Wichita and to Eugene, and they passed by even larger margins in those places. And then she and State Senator Briggs, at Briggs Initiative, fought it the California statewide. And most of the community didn't want to fight it. They had become dispirited and scared. And they said, if we fight it and we lose again, then we just give them more credibility and let's just set it out so it doesn't look like a real campaign, and we'll take it to court. And then there was people like myself, and Troy Perry, and Diane Abbott, and Roberta Bennett, and a lot of latter latter, Gene Leary, a whole group of said, how can you not fight for your own freedom? How can you stay on the sidelines? We're not a political strategy. And one of the points the other people were saying in the community, it would be uncomfortable for candidates. And I said, I'm not waiting for a comfort level to be freedom. If they're uncomfortable, that's their problem. They have to decide what they believe in. And that's okay. If they're against us, we know. And we put together a campaign. And at the time we started, we had like 25% of the vote in the polls. As we got closer to the election day, we ran a damn good campaign and raised a lot of money, and Hollywood was very helpful. And we were raising twice as much as uh, Briggs. And uh, to make a long story short, we got to elect about two, three, four weeks outside election day, and we were only five points behind. But we were struggling. We had really tapped everything we could think we could tap. And I knew some friends who knew Ronald Reagan. So I called them up and said, I want to meet with the governor. And he wasn't governor at the time, but you still called him governor. And they said, David, he's going to support this initiative. And I said, I got to try. It's our only hope of winning is to get him on our side. And they said, it's not going to happen, but we'll set up the meeting. So the meeting was set up. And then the community was angry at me for going to meet with this ideologically wrong person. And I said, look, if it doesn't work, just blame me, fire my ass. I've got to try. So I went to Governor Reagan and one of the kindest, most thoughtful men I've ever met with in American politics, quite honestly, as far as personality. And he said, David, I'm going to endorse this initiative. I hate to tell you, but you know that. I know my staff told you, and I said, yes, and that's why I wanted to talk to you. I was shocked. David, you can't be shocked. I'm Ronald Reagan, and you're David Mixner, and you had to know. (laughs) And I laughed, and I said, Governor, I never thought I'd live today to see you support anarchy in the schools. He looked at me and said, what do you mean, anarchy in the schools? I said, well, Governor, I've read your biography, and you and I have something in common. We were both hells-raisers in school, in secondary school, high school. And I said, look at this clause right here. And I had it highlighted. And it said that if any teacher is accused by a pupil or other of being gay, they had to be brought forth by the school board in front of the community and prove that they weren't and there was no due process or anything and I said, by the time they get the school board, they'll be fired and if they're fired under this initiative, their license, teaching license will be taken away for life. I said, now, I don't know about you, but if I faced expulsion from school, all I had to do was say that teacher was gay and came on to me, I'd stay in school and they'd leave. So the kids are going to run the schools. He said, those stupid motherfuckers. <laughs> And he sat back in his chair and he looked at me and he said, you're one smart cookie, Mixner. And I said, no, governor, they're pretty dumb. And that's why I was shocked that you would participate with people like them. So the meeting, which I had been promised 15 minutes and 15 minutes only lasted almost an hour. So he leads me to the door and I turned to him. I said, governor, can you tell me what you're going to do? He said, no, and I said, you've run a good campaign, son. And then I walked out the door. I got back, and everyone was waiting at the headquarters. I said, I have no idea. And again, I was still getting a lot of hostile reaction from meeting with the devil. Right? And a couple of days later, in a newspaper column across the state, in every newspaper, Governor Reagan wrote a column and said, I'm opposing Proposition 6 because it will create anarchy in the schools. And wow. Then- and on election day we won with fifty-four percent of the vote.
0: Which was the first such victory, September, I believe.
1: Ever victory against an initiative.
0: That's amazing.
1: Four questions here, Mike.
0: Well, it almost sounds like that was the, the Scarlet Letter and the Witch the Witch Hunts of the Trials of Salem in the sixteen hundreds. It, it really was
1: it wasn't. Yeah. Sounds like it was. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I know we're getting near the end of this time. Uh, I have uh, one major question for you and then one minor one. The major one is you nice. know, Go. Uh, that, that's okay. <laughs> I have a, a second major question. Is available to anybody that's listening and watching? Absolutely. So, uh, well, not anyone, but the right person. Yes. So you were very active in fundraising and standing up against the forces that refused to give funds to uh, trying to help find a solution for, the AIDS, for AIDS as a disease. And yet you also had a partner who was dying of it at the time. That must have been a tremendously painful period. How did you deal with that?
1: First of all, I was one of 500,000 people who had to deal with it. It's not how did I get through it, how did any of us get through it. And the way we got through it was instead of becoming victims, instead of the community retreating into itself, and putting our heads between the legs and screaming, why us? We grew more defiant. We grew closer together. And our politics were uncompromising about finding a cure or a solution or a way to save our friends and husbands and wives' lives. And then the community came together and created food banks, dentists. Because you've got to remember, funeral directors wouldn't bury us. Doctors were given permission not to treat us. We were treated as leopards. we were not allowed in the restaurants. It was just horrendous. We got almost no support from outside the community. But we even had an organization that walked people's dogs called PARD Pulse. We had an organization that did HIV AIDS positive people's laundry. We all learned to change tubes. We all learned how to put soothing lotion over shingles with gloves. We all made a vow the whole community that no one would die alone, because a lot of people, once their families found out they were HIV positive and AIDS, wouldn't come be by their bedside when they died, and no one died alone.
0: I no also one. interviewed Eric Sawyer, who was a co-founder of ACT UP. Yeah, like
1: Eric and I were good co-workers.
0: And you know, they were also responsible for providing housing for all the people that the got kicked out. and
1: food and Project Angel Food and with God's love we delivered and. Uh, Gay Men's Health Crisis and AIDS Project LA and San Francisco AIDS Foundation. We rose to the occasion. And as we're trying to stay alive, this should never be forgotten. Our lesbian sisters joined us. They did not have people at that time dying of HIV. And they also took leadership positions in many of the organizations so that we could take care of our second dying. I will never forget the lesbian support. It's Lesbian Awareness Week. Let's give them a stand-up ovation.
0: Absolutely. I I just recently interviewed Michaela Griffo. I don't know if you know her. And uh, we talked about that. There really was no community between gay men and lesbians in the 60s and 70s when they were shut out of the National Organization for Women. But gay men were too busy learning about our freedom to have sex to really want to engage women. And AIDS was what brought us together. And I don't know if you'll agree, but I feel like the fact that we were forced to come out but also forced to unify is probably responsible for the great leap in our in our civil rights over the next twenty years. Well
1: I think there's no question the organizing we had to do on HIV and AIDS enabled us to deal what lied ahead. You can deal with that, you can deal with <laughs> anything. My experience of AIDS helped me get through COVID. The but I must say the attempts to unify the communities began before AIDS in nineteen seventy-six
0: mm-hmm.
1: with a lot of lesbians and a lot of gay men working together on an International Women's Year and really making an attempt. MECLUB, which I helped get involved in, was the first organization in the country in 1977 to have 50% women on the board, 50% men, and
0: co-chairs. That was in L.A. That was in L.A. in
1: 1977. So they were, it was on the way.
0: That's useful information <laughs> that I hadn't heard.
1: Liberation and also believe in freedom. It wasn't a need or war situation.
0: You've been honored by many organizations. Your personal effects and collection of books and other materials around your civil rights work are at Yale University in their library. You, had, you were invited to meet with Prime Minister Gordon Brown in the UK for dinner, the first time a British leader ever honored an LGTB activist. You performed in all these autobiographical uh, off-Broadway, on-Broadway productions, and you've written a memoir does any, do any of those have particularly special meaning for you, or, or if not, perhaps some other accomplishment I've overlooked?
1: I think my most important accomplishment was to rein in my self-righteousness. And number two is to never, ever take for granted my friends or family, because in the end, no matter what happened to me, whether I was politically popular or politically down, and Let me say, I've been carried on people's shoulders, and I've been dropped from those shoulders a couple of times.
0: And carried it for yourself.
1: Yeah, and I had friends to catch me. And I have had a simply splendid journey. And I have been blessed with good friends. I have been blessed with uh, opportunities not presented to others. I have made the history of my times, and I have met the people who were making the history of my times. Can't ask for anything more. I'd be selfish.
0: David, on behalf of all of the community, I want to thank you for all the work you've done for us, but also for all the other groups you've represented, civil rights, the uh, NAACP, etc. Please keep at it, and you'll have my and our support if you need it. And it's been a great honor to know you and to get to know you even better today.
1: Well, thank you for all you've done, Mike. Uh, You're one of my heroes. You've been there front and center for us time and time again, and that's how we have all gotten through it, hasn't it? Working side by side and, and looking after each other. So, thank you for that. And thank you for looking after me at times. I, it is never
0: forgotten and greatly appreciated. My pleasure. I look forward to seeing you soon when I come back to New York. I count on it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. This episode of Bammer and Me has been produced by Mike Balaban, Tom Walker, Justin Winnick, and Matteo Nikolov. For more stories, go to bammer.co. If you'd like to contribute a story from your life, contact me at mike at bammer.co.